I'm reading this morning from Acts chapter 18. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Thank you, Val. Well, good morning. When I first came to Christ at age 17, I got involved in a small church. I really loved those people. There were some great folks there, and I was drawn in by their warmth and their kindness, and they drew me in. And, but it wasn't too long till I began to discover more about that church. Uh, it was recently had split off from another church in town, because of some disagreements between the leadership, not theological, but just personality conflicts. And there were other difficulties. There were people there that weren't always easy to get along with. And it really struck me how kind of messy this church was. (laughs) You see, when you become part of a church fellowship, that's pretty normal. Whether it's small or large, no matter what, you quickly discover that Church is messy, full of messed up, struggling people trying to figure out life and what it means to walk with God. People have different religious perspectives, different political persuasions, different moral backgrounds, different family backgrounds, different theologies than yours, different likes and dislikes in music. Different likes and dislikes in paint, (laughs) carpet color, chair color, (laughs) different races, on and on. So we quickly get disillusioned with the church and what it is. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his wonderful little book, Life Together, says this, The serious Christian, set down for the first time in a Christian community, is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be. And then he tries to realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams, 
Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate, with ourselves. The sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. <laughs> Isn't that interesting perspective he has? You see, one of the most important things you can learn about church as you get involved in one is that the church is God's idea. The church is God's idea. I'm not talking so much about the liturgy, the kind of songs that are sung, the programs, that kind of thing. But the church, the people, the diversity of people that God calls into a body, it's God's plan. Why does God call such diversity from so many different backgrounds and perspectives for us to be together and be the church? Well, ultimately, it's so we can learn to love one another. That's God's plan even with our differences, because it's in how we love one another, how we learn to care for others that are so different than us, that Jesus is made known to the world. You see, there's no other institution, no other group in all the world that brings together such diversity. And as we learn to love one another and care for one another, bonded by one thing, Jesus his death on the cross for us. And that bonds us together and we learn to love one another. The life of Jesus is made known to the world around us. That's one of the main reasons for the church. So you can learn to love those who are different <laughs> than you. So today we begin a new series. Today we move on to the New Testament, to the book of 1 Corinthians. The theme of the book is we... We are God's temple. We are God's temple. You see, in the Old Testament, the visible presence of God among the nation of Israel was what? The temple. Now, in the Old Testament, the temple was the visible presence of God. They all knew that God didn't just limit himself to living in that temple, but that was the visible presence of God among the nation of Israel. But in the New Testament... And it's made very clear in the book of 1 Corinthians, it says, we are the temple. The people are the temple. We are the visible presence of God in the world. We, the church. Not the building, but the people. The church is where God dwells in the world. And so in this study of 1 Corinthians, we'll learn much about what it means for us to be the temple, to be the people of God together. Paul uses a number of metaphors. He uses the picture of a field. We'll look at that. That we are the field where God has planted the church. He also uses the picture of a building. The church is a building. He also calls it the temple. He also describes the church as a human body with different parts but only one head under Christ. But all these and all the descriptions in the book of 1 Corinthians are to help us understand who we are as God's people, this church thing that God has created. So today we're looking at Acts chapter 18 because that's how the church at Corinth got founded. 
In this passage, we'll see how God established the church there, and it's a wonderful reminder to us that the church is God's idea, not ours. It's his plan. Therefore, I believe your presence here this morning, your being part of Cole Community Church, is God's plan. It's not ultimately yours. Could you leave and go to another church? Sure. But I'm just saying for now, for right now, God has called you here to be part of this messy body. (laughs) And so you're here by God's choice. And so our study is to help us begin to understand that and help us understand that this church and the people you're around is God's idea. Let's pray and then we'll look at this passage together. Lord, thank you that you created the church. It is your idea. You called us together to learn to love people that are very different than us, that have different perspectives, different backgrounds, different racial backgrounds, all kinds of things. But Lord, it's your idea. So as we look at this passage together and how you founded the church at Corinth, may we see your hand at work so that we will learn to be thankful for the church that you've given us to be part of. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the church is God's idea. We see that in this passage, first of all, because he provides the people. He brings the people together to create the church. I want to show you a little historical background just to give you a sense of what's going on in this book of 1 Corinthians. This is Paul's second missionary journey. And as he makes this journey, he begins in Antioch, which was the place that sent him out. And on this journey, he visits some of the churches he visited on his first. And then as he's traveling, he senses God's call, a man. He has a dream, a vision of a man from Macedonia that says, Come, we need you. We need to hear the word. So he travels up here. He goes to Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Three churches we know a fair amount about. We know that when Paul went, and it's described in the book of Acts, he had a really tough time. In all three of those Grecian cities, Roman Grecian cities, the Jewish population rose up against him and forced him to leave town. He had to run before he had any chance to really establish the church there. It was very difficult, painful, thrown out of town. It was tough for him. So he left there, Berea, and went down to Athens. And there in Athens, it was the center of philosophers, of scholars. And they were intrigued by what he had to say. And a few people came to Christ, but there really wasn't a big church established. There really wasn't a church established as far as we know. So from there, he went to Corinth, another Greco-Roman town. Interesting town. It's at the very land bridge, the isthmus of the Peloponnesian Peninsula. This is one big peninsula with water all the way around it except for one little land bridge right in the center. So Paul shows up there in this town of Corinth. Let me show you another slide that shows you a close-up of that very isthmus. This is a satellite picture. And Corinth was probably right about here at this place with two ports, Now, right now you can see that there's a canal there. It was built in 1893. But in that day, during the days of the New Testament, 
it was a busy, busy, busy port. Ships would come, of course, from way over in the west and from the east because they didn't want to have to go all the way around the Peloponnesian Peninsula. And so they would come and they would actually, smaller ships, they would take logs and roll them and pull it the three and a half miles across this isthmus to get the ship to the other side. Larger ships, they would unload, carry their cargo in wagons to the other side and then load them on another ship. But it was a very, very busy area, busy port. The city of Corinth in those days, one estimate, major estimate that I heard, had a little over 200,000 people in it. The 2010 census for Boise said that we had 205,000 people in it. So think of a city just exactly the same size as Boise. In those days, crowded in this isthmus and people are coming through all the time sailors, businessmen it was a very, very, very busy area all kinds of people showing up it was a great crossroads of humanity of all types and you can imagine this created an incredibly diverse community in Corinth there were sailors, businessmen, soldiers all kinds of diverse religious perspectives all kinds of moral perspectives, but primarily Corinth was known as a very immoral city. In fact, if you wanted to go somewhere because you wanted to live an immoral lifestyle, Corinth was where you went in the entire Roman Empire. (laughs) It had the Temple of Aphrodite there, which was served by a thousand priestesses who were prostitutes prostitute priestesses. If you wanted to go worship at the temple of Aphrodite, you would go have sex with one of the priestesses. It was a place of gross immorality. 400 BC, 400 years before Paul was even there. It was proverbial throughout the Roman Empire. If you were going to go Corinthianize, that meant to go commit sexual immorality. If you were called a Corinthian girl, if someone insulted you by saying, you're nothing but a Corinthian girl, that was a way of saying you're a prostitute. That was 400 years before Paul was even there, and all the indications are nothing had changed by the time Paul showed up. You see, this place was a place of diversity, of immorality, a very difficult place, I think, to plant a church Ray Stedman says this about it. Corinth had gained a reputation throughout the whole Roman world as the center of sensuality. Corinth was infested with certain stubborn strongholds of evil, which the apostle describes in his first letter to the Corinthians. Sexual license and perversion were rampant. Racial discord was prominent. There were family feuds and political tyranny. And of course, spreading over everything was the emptiness and lack of purpose, which paganism always produces. Corinth was so very much like our own cities. We live in Corinthian conditions today. And if there is any church in the New Testament with which we could particularly identify, this, Corinth, is the one. We might call the book First Boiseans, (laughs) because I think it fits with us. So God sends Paul to this huge, immoral, diverse city. 
He was tired. He was fearful. He was alone. He'd had difficult ministry everywhere he'd gone. He describes in the book of 1 Corinthians, in the second chapter, verse 3, he says, describing his visit to them, he said, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Over in 2 Corinthians, he describes his visit there as well. And he says in verse 8, chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Paul thought he was going to die. He'd given up. He was that discouraged. He was depressed. So he describes how when he showed up in Corinth, this is his state of mind. Questioning, wondering what God would do. What does God do? He establishes a church. And first of all, he provides the people for the church. (laughs) That's what God does. He provides the people for the church. First of all, he provides new friends for Paul. Now, it says that Paul showed up, he didn't know what to do, and he ran into a couple of Jews, Aquila and Priscilla, who had been kicked out of Rome by the Emperor Claudius, forced to go somewhere else, so they end up in Corinth, and guess what? They show up at exactly the same time as Paul. They're of the same trade. They're tent makers or leather workers, and they begin to build a relationship and work together. We don't know if they were believers before they met Paul, Or if he led them to the Lord, we don't know that part of the story, but clearly they came to Christ here if they weren't already believers. And they became great friends of Paul, great supporters of his ministry. Later they went back to Rome and had a house church there that he visited. They had a house church in Ephesus that he visited at one point. They were just people who loved God and served, and they were a great encouragement to Paul. And I love the fact that God used the emperor of Claudius, the emperor of the Roman Empire, to make this edict so that Aquila and Priscilla would be kicked out of Rome, have to go somewhere, just so they could meet Paul. God's pretty amazing, isn't he? (laughs) He is sovereign. He's working out his will. We don't have to be afraid of the world around us because God is in control. The church is God's idea. So he is... He provides new friends for Paul as he's beginning his ministry in Corinth in his discouragement. Then he provides old friends. Verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Now Paul, in his travels, as he was in Thessalonica and he got kicked out of Thessalonica, he and Timothy and Silas, They went on and then Paul was so worried about the church because he'd only spent about three weeks in Thessalonica. He was concerned about them. So he sent Timothy and Silas back and said, go find out how things are going. I'm so worried about them. I I hardly had time to teach them the word. Then he ends up in Corinth and they show up. And we're told in the book of 1 Thessalonians that they brought a great report. The church is doing well. And so... Paul is incredibly encouraged because of these old friends that show up and now are working with him. And not only are they just old friends and they brought good news, but they also brought money so that Paul could now devote himself full-time 
to ministry. So God provides new friends and old friends, and then he provides a place of ministry. Verse 6 and 7, you see where he began teaching the Jews about Christ, and it says, When they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I'll go to the Gentiles. But listen to where he went. (laughs) And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Isn't that great? (laughs) So there's this Titius Justus who's a God-fearer. That means that he was going to the synagogue. He was a Gentile, but he hadn't been... He couldn't become a full Jew because he wasn't Jewish by birth, but he was wanting to know God. So he attached himself to the synagogue. But when he heard Paul, he thought, now this is the truth. This is good news for me as a Gentile. I can come right into God's presence. So he comes to Christ, but he happens to live next door to the synagogue. So all the Jews, as they're going to worship at the synagogue, are seeing Paul next door and all the people streaming in to come hear the true word of God. An ideal location to keep preaching because the leader of the synagogue, we're told, Crispus, in verse 8, is converted. I mean, he's watching all this that's going on. He sees people hearing the truth. He goes and hears it. And the leader of the synagogue himself, Crispus, is converted. What a great picture. So God is working to call out a people, providing the people for the church, those he wants. And here's what I'm struck by. It says in verse 8 that Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians believed as well. Remember who the Corinthians are? Remember this diverse, immoral group that lives in Corinth? The church is God's idea. And it's his idea to have people like Crispus who are very moral, titious, justice, more religious type people, and to have people from all kinds of backgrounds. From diverse moral backgrounds and diverse racial backgrounds. God wants the church to be diverse. And most of the church in Corinth was a pretty messy group. We learn that from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, where he says this. He's talking to the Corinthians. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God jo- chose what is low and despised in the world even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Paul has a wonderful way of winning friends, isn't he? He says, isn't it great? You guys are part of the church and you're a bunch of low, despised people. You're weak. You're a mess. Isn't that a wonderful testimony to the gospel? That's the church. Not many noble, not many wise Not many impressive in the world, but a bunch of people who have put their faith in Jesus who died for them. 
And that bonds us together into one family, one people, one body, one temple, one church. Now I admit, when we come to the church, there's a part of us that wants to be with people like us, right? I mean, we want to be in Bible studies, you know, if we're a young couple, we want to be with other young couples. If, you know, we're older and more mature, we want to be with older, more mature people that are in a similar state in their lives. If you're single, you want to be with singles. Married, you want to be with married, etc. But, and there's something okay about that to a certain degree, but just understand God's plan for the church is that we learn to love people that are very different from us. When God provides people for a church, he brings all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds together so that we can learn to love those that are very different from us. That's the miracle of the gospel, that we might learn to love others, that, that singles might learn to really appreciate and love married people, that married would learn to love and appreciate singles, that older people would learn to appreciate and value younger, and younger would learn to value and appreciate older. That, and, and I really mean this, that even Democrats would learn to appreciate Republicans <laughs> and vice versa. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> you see, and when, when we in all our diversity learn to love one another in the body of Christ, the world is amazed. Because that doesn't happen. I mean, look at the election these days. Look at the antagonism and the, the things that are going on because of political differences. And we in the body of Christ need to be different in all these ways. I need you to love me with all my quirks and my sins and my struggles. And you need me to love you with all your quirks and sins and struggles. Dietrich Bonhoeffer again comments on this. He says, Even when sin and misunderstanding burden the communal life, is not the sinning brother or sister still a brother or sister with whom I, too, stand under the word of Christ? Will not his or her sin be a constant occasion for me to give thanks that both of us may live in the forgiving love of God in Jesus Christ? Do you get what he's saying? He said, we ought to be thankful that we're in a messy, sinful, struggling group of people that reminds us all the time that we live under the cross. All of us need God's forgiveness every minute, and we have the opportunity to extend God's forgiveness to one another constantly. That's the body of Christ. And God's plan is that there would be diversity so we would learn to love one another. So God provides the people. Church is his idea. And God also provides the promises that hold us together, that we hang on together as a body of Christ. Notice verse 10, 9 and 10. It says, The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. 
God gives Paul three commands and then three promises in these short couple of verses. Three commands, three promises to encourage him. Now remember, Paul's discouraged. He's depressed. It's hard and he's, he's had all this opposition in these other cities. He shows up here and he has all kinds of opposition again. And yeah, people are coming to Christ, but the Jews are still out to get him. And it's tough. But God gives him three commands. Do not be afraid. Keep speaking. And don't be silent. You see, he wants to encourage him to not give up, to not let fear overcome his faithfulness to God. And sometimes fear enters into the body of Christ and divides us and makes us withdraw and be silent and not keep using our gifts to minister one another. Maybe we're afraid of being hurt or we're afraid of rejection or we're afraid that somebody's going to be offended by what we say or whatever it might be. We're afraid to enter into relationship because we've been hurt or whatever it might be. And so God gives us these commands and these promises. Don't fear. Paul is afraid. He's told us. But he says, don't fear. Keep speaking. Don't be silent. What are the three promises to help him deal with his fears? First of all, he says this, I am with you. See, the first promise is that in the church, in the messiness, it can feel like God's not there, but he, his first promise is that I'm here. He promises his presence. God promises us his presence. That in the mess, as we seek him and we seek to love each other, he'll be in it. He'll be working in the midst of that. He will never depart from his church He will never leave us alone because this is where he's chosen to dwell. In all the messiness, this is where he's chosen to plant his very spirit and his life. When I say here, I don't mean just coal, obviously. I mean all the church throughout the world, each community. That's where he's chosen to plant his life. The second promise after his presence is that no one will attack you to harm you. He's promised his protection that no matter how embattled we may seem to be in a church, no matter how many outside influences might try to destroy us and attack us, God will protect us. Think about the church over the last 2,000 years. How many nations, how many um, places the church has been heavily persecuted, how we're getting more and more marginalized in our society and set aside and rejected for our beliefs as believers in the U.S. But in all those times, the church has continued to grow and to be strong. He will protect us. He has protected us. Think of a place like China where Christianity was banned for so many years. What happened? Church went underground. It got stronger and more vibrant And it grew dramatically. His final promise, I have many in this city who are my people. God promises his presence, his protection, and now his people. I have many people. You're not alone, Paul. I've called many to come to faith in this place. So keep speaking. 
I will accomplish the results. What this teaches us is that the church is God's idea. (laughs) It's his idea. He brings the people and he gives us promises to rely on in the midst of it when it gets messy to know that he's still here, he's still working, he's protecting us and he's calling out people for his name. So keep loving one another. These promises became the foundation for the new church at Corinth. As God says, the church is my idea. So how does Paul respond to that promise? Verse 11, he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. He said, okay, I'm afraid, I'm depressed, I'm discouraged, but I will keep speaking. And so he stayed another year and a half teaching the word of God. God provides the people for the church and he provides the promises that we can rely on to hang in there when things get messy and tough. He also provides protection. Now these are one of these promises, but now we see it acted out in verses 12 through 17. Let me read, start reading those to you. Read a couple. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, verse 12, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Now, Gallio was a powerful man in the Roman Empire. He was the governor of the entire region. He ruled, we know historically, A.D. 50 to 52, so we know that's when Paul was in Corinth. We have historical evidence of Gallio being the governor of the area. Now, when the Jews rise up against Paul again to try to destroy his ministry, this is a huge threat because their accusation is this. They're saying... Christianity is an illegal religion in the Roman Empire. Now, the Roman Empire was very diverse. They allowed all kinds of bizarre religions, pagan religions. There were temples everywhere worshiping all kinds of strange gods and goddesses. But if you were not recognized by the authorities as a legal religion then you would be persecuted to the full extent of the law. You'd be shut down, you'd be thrown in jail you'd be done away with. And the Jews are saying, this Christianity, it's a, new, it's a new religion. It's not legal in the Roman Empire. And you need to get rid of Paul and you need to get rid of all these guys. This is a huge threat in those days because it could have meant that Christianity would be completely banned in the Roman Empire at the very time when it was expanding under Paul and the apostles' teaching at its most critical time. But how does Gallio respond? Verse 14, when Paul was about to open his mouth, now Paul's going to give his defense. Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. What Gallio essentially says is, it's obvious you're talking about just another sect of Judaism. So you guys work it out, but I'm not going to do anything because it's just part of you. And Judaism was a legally accepted religion in the Roman Empire. Again, I love the way God in his sovereignty is working even through this 
pagan governor to provide protection for the church for the next 10 to 12 years. Now after that, Nero came to power as emperor and he threw the book at the church and it ended up being a difficult time. But at this point, when it was expanding and it was really important to get the word out, God protects the church so it can grow and develop and the word can go out freely. It's just a reminder. The church is God's idea. And he will see that nothing can destroy it. Remember what Jesus said, the church was established by God and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will protect the church. I will make sure it becomes what it needs to be and protect it from outside harm. Folks, the church is God's idea. So what do we learn from all this? Well, ultimately, the church is God's idea. He brings into it the people he wants in all our messiness and diversity. He provides his promises so we can hang on to those and keep reaching out to minister and love one another and use our gifts with one another even when it sometimes gets hard. And he provides his protection so that we can trust him that the church is in his hands and he'll get us where we need to be. You see, if we can be the church that we're called to be, learning to love one another, God will do great things. I told you about the little church I became part of when I first came to Christ at age 17. And it was a split off another church. And I thought, wow, that's too bad. What a mess, you know, but okay. I like these people and I put down my roots there. Well, interesting, a few years later, that church and the church it split off from recombined. They decided that the reasons they had split up were wrong. There were personality differences. They reached to begin to love one another. They made a church right on the border, right halfway between where the other two churches had been, built a church there. I later pastored that church for two years. And God was working. Why? Because the church was learning to love one another. So what's our part? If, if the church is God's idea, what's our part? Well, our part is to learn to be the church, to learn to live in unity, to learn to practice holiness, to be like Christ and love each other in that way and to pursue love of one another. So in the book of First Boiseans that we're going to be studying for the next year probably, we'll see that the church struggled a lot. They failed. They had troubles. They didn't get along at times. We'll see that they're just like us. <laughs> and the adventure of this year's study is to recognize the church is God's idea. So how do we learn to be the church that God has designed us to be? How do we be God's temple in a dark and confused world? I want to end with just a quote again from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Life Together. Here's what we're called to. We thank God for giving us brethren who live by his call, by his forgiveness and his promise. 
We do not complain of what God does not give us, but instead we rather thank God for what he does give us daily. And is not what has been given us enough? Brothers and sisters who will go on living with us through sin and need and under the blessing of his grace. That's the church. Learning to be thankful that God placed us in this body as we learn to sit under his grace and forgiveness with one another every day. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that the church is your idea. It's your creation. It's your design. And the people that are here in this room, the people that are part of your church, are your plan. And we admit that's hard for us because sometimes we don't like each other that well. (laughs) But Lord, help us learn to be the church, to be your visible presence in this world because this world desperately needs to see your life lived out as we learn to love one another. So use this book of 1 Corinthians this year to help us learn to be the church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.